Hello, Food Chain. This is Sharon Chiton, and I'm a food tech junkie and innovation nerd who loves a good story. This podcast combines all of my favorite vices into a deep dive about the problems our food system faces and the visionary people working on solutions. Today, we're thrilled to have Ali Wing, CEO of Oobly, with us. Ali's revolutionizing sweetness by using fruit proteins as sugar substitutes aiming to cut sugar content in foods and drinks up to 90% without losing tastes. A leader in brand building and data-driven growth, she's at the forefront of merging consumer brands with technology for healthier living. Join us for an engaging talk on this innovative approach for sweetness. Let's get started. Are you ready? Here we go. Allie, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to to have you and to dive into a very important conversation. I think one that we've really started to chew on, especially since COVID, a little bit more, if, <laughs> pardon my pun. But before we dive into what you do and the relationship between food, nutrition, sugar reduction, especially in the U.S., can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started? Sure. I always jokingly say I think I'm an accidental entrepreneur and probably accidental in this space. Like most of us usually are, right? Um, I grew up a small town kid in Bozeman, Montana, one of nine kids. And We lived um, in the country, and uh, although my dad was college educated, the rest of us represent kind of the first generation of leaving the farm, if you will. And so I always say, we were farm to table before anybody had called it that and had a marketing slogan for it, mostly because of affordability. So we grew and raised what we ate was generally how we lived because packaged food in those days was expensive, right? Um, I found myself post-college at Nike and ended up in the sports and fitness world both actually in Europe and in the U.S., and was in the conversation of food and performance and sports. And when I then landed in the Silicon Valley afterwards, really realizing that I love to build and innovate, I kept just gravitating to all things that were about healthy living and using technology as a lever to unlock some of these bigger dilemmas because, you know, I sort of emerging point of view that I'm now very active on, but I don't think I knew it when I was younger was, if you don't have health, what do you have, right? Like health is the vehicle. So we can't solve much without it. And that's the thing that keeps me up at night. And now I spend my time from healthcare tech to now food is medicine, really trying to put my money where my mouth is, no pun intended, but so to speak, right? Which is an extremely important mission to have. And like you just said, you're doing it in your work as well. So today you are CEO of a company that does exactly that. Can you tell us a little bit about Oobly, its mission, the idea, and how did it uh, happen that you decided to use proteins as a sugar replacement? Tell you the mission first, and then we'll back up a little bit about sweet proteins because you probably need a little background. Most people do, even a lot of biochemists I know, because we're very much a first generation of this technology, right? So the mission really is, Um, If I zoom out 10 years and say, why do I get up every day and why am I choosing to do this? It's to bend the global health curve. And while I was younger, for sure, this was more of a U.S. problem. It's now very much a global problem. And we know that sweets, you could say nourish our souls. 
what we think we're up to with sweet proteins is a pathway to give us as much nourishment for our body and our planets as a result of what nourishes our souls. And bringing those back in balance is really the reason why we get up every day. That's what we're doing with sweet proteins. So let me back up and say what sweet proteins are. And I would say I'm a career of operating at the intersection of healthy living and technology. Really, that's kind of where I've spent most of my career now across five industries. And I've never in my career seen such a beautiful marriage of the best of nature and the best of technology. And that's the cool part of sweet proteins. Sweet proteins evolved in plants along the equator. So um, we know of about a dozen today. I'm sure we're going to discover more now that we have a lot of the tools we didn't have before. Um, and what we know about them is these plants and berries were trying to figure out a way to be attractive to a mobile species, an ape, a gorilla, or a human who could eat their seeds and spread or they'd become extinct. But it was very calorically expensive for them to use their sort of leafy green production or for photosynthesis um, to create berries. And they evolved to be a more calorically efficient way to trick us with a protein that does kind of the same thing that small molecules, which is typically our sugars, due to our taste receptors, but it's with a protein that's acting as a trickster. And it's basically tickling your taste receptor, telling your brain, hey, I just got sugar. But when you swallow, it unfolds and moves in your body as a protein. So thousands of years ago, when these plants started doing this, that was a dirty trick to an ape or gorilla who'd climbed out of their way to get the special little berry for a sweet trick, right? Because that's what we all crave as species, right? And that's normal that we have this biological craving. But then as they swallowed it, it unfolded and it didn't do what sugars typically do. It acted as a protein in their body. Now, fast forward to a lot years later and look at our modern food supply. It's biologically normal that we crave sugar, right? That's human nature, right? We weren't designed to have it recklessly abundant in our diet. And we're not very good at moderating that, right? And that is at odds today with our metabolic systems, um, particularly diabetes, what we see showing up in diabetes and obesity, but the myriad of things from glucose and insulin to gut microbiome that's going on. So basically, you're creating a product that mimics sugar, which is amazing. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the impact, obviously, the sugar crisis that is happening in our modern food system. Today, we're eating a lot of processed foods with lots of sugar that cost uh, very little compared to actual good food. So how bad is this crisis? And obviously, different continents have different problems. But what's your take on this? Well, let's start from the biggest population in the world and talk about India. Okay. It's got a a bigger population issue of diabetes and obesity than the U.S. does. It's rivaling us at the roughly 30, a third of the population being pre-diabetic or diabetic and over 40% being obese and having it at rates in their children of almost 20%. We see that in Southeast Asia. We see that in Latin America. We see that in the U.S. So it is definitely a U.S. issue. We talk about it. We have a megaphone for these discussions, right? But it is the biggest populations in the world today. Um, here's the best anecdote I give, and I don't have the exact percentage, so I could be off by one or two in my current year, but I always use this as an example because in a, in the U S or at least as I, as a kid grew up thinking Japanese culture and food was very healthy, right? Generally one of the healthier planets we always see about the centurion stories and everything there. And Japanese population is about high teens now in pre-diabetic and diabetic. And when we were children, when I was a child. Um, So let's just say 10 or 15, 20 years ago, um, those were 
it's low single digit. So what you can say is, yes, it's true regionally, it's penetration throughout the world, but the trend is common. <laughs> and the trend by all definitions is epidemic levels. And those are very, very big issues for us to tackle. Um, so I think of, we started 2023 without Ozempic and Wegovy. Look at what's happening with those drugs. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for modern medicine to be able to cure things. But I can't imagine the best solution here is to go after how to fix it with pharmaceutical versus think about what's going on with how we feed our bodies, right? So in extreme cases, I think it's great we have, but look at the demand, right? That company, what are they, about 20 billion in their first year? That's the demand of this problem at the smallest level because they're barely out of the gate. And so this is a very, very big issue for us. It's a big issue that, you know, I think of lifestyle and livability. That's if you've almost got a 40% of the global population starting to be at suboptimal health, or I should say of developed countries, right? Um, The reality is, is are we really going to be able to tackle climate change? Right? Do we, are we really confused that we have more violence in the world? Think about how you feel when you wake up every day, right? Mm-hmm. Health is a gift of, of attitude and spirit and capability and good learning environments and all of those things. And so if we're operating this way, I think it's very connected to a lot of the things that we're trying to tackle in the world. If I put all of that aside for a minute and I'm just a mercenary business person for a minute and say, we can't afford the medical crisis in front of us. It's a very expensive set of diseases. Look at the U.S. medical costs associated with obesity and diabetes. Some would argue it's several percentage points today of our GDP, right? And so we're entering into the baby boomer years of retirement. I actually don't think the math works if we don't start to tackle this. I don't tend to wake up each day with that as my motivation, but I can say, even if you don't buy that we feel better with our bodies actually functioning the way they're supposed to without having to medicate them, the reality is it's a very expensive problem to manage. It is indeed. And I mean, in the U.S. especially, I think without having universal health care. And so you tackle only when you have a problem with massive impact, you know, preventative care goes out the window. Like Wait, we, we often say we're the, I came from healthcare tech last. I say, we may be the best sick care in the world. If you're really sick, you probably are lucky to get to come here, but we're probably the worst healthcare, right? It's not about healthy living. So we're not a, we're not the great country for figuring out food is medicine because it's preventative. And that's actually our Achilles heel, right? That's thinking in advance, going slow, planning for the future. Those are not the American greats. American greats are ripping it apart and solving the problem, right? So this is why I get really excited about global conversations like this, about how are we going to rise above cultural differences, system differences, and look at this global phenomena of metabolic disorders that we have to tackle. It's a positive correlation to the changes throughout our food supply. We have a little bit more or less in some countries, but the same themes. Absolutely. And at this point, you can't even really call it, you know, a global South or global North problem because it's really about eating junk food, you know, bad nutrition that has a very low cost and creates a whole bunch of, uh, Um, health issues. So it's one that is creating the highest mortality rate, right? 
It does. And it's got, as we know, through the last three decades, it's got great exportability. So cheap food processed this way gets moved quickly to the developing places too. So um, let's let's not continue to export the problem. Let's solve it and then minimize the export. So how do we solve it? <laughs> oh man, I have the one solution, right? The one magic trick. Listen, sugar, I'll start there and say, it's certainly not the sole cor- culprit, right? There's a lot of influences in what's going on with this issue, but a chief culprit is just how we consume sugar today. And the myriad of health issues related to sugar, um, just the basics of inflammation are so well recorded at this point. And the example I would give you is that if I was 30 years ago, if I had a little single serving of yogurt for breakfast, I was really having a breakfast food. Today, it would be hard to argue what I'm eating isn't a dessert, right? In general, those are two to three to sometimes four times the amounts of sugar in a serving that they were when we were little. And you step back and you say, what, how could this be? Like, what's gone on? Well, it, I don't really believe any industry woke up to be the bad guy. But when you've got a healthcare system that's not really focused on food, right? The U.S. would admit that, right? There's no clinical trials for food. So it's all about taking out the disease. Um, you've got a food system that's all about rewarding behaviors for speed and, and increased consumption, right? And then you've got a fundamental human biology that says, I like sugar, so give me more. And I'm generally, as a human, not that great at control, right? I'm pretty prone to addictions. And then you've had the years of the last 20 to 30 years with mass commercialization and increase in production. So what I think you have is this perfect storm, not really a conspiracy, but the perfect storm of influences that created this machine of sugar everywhere, sugar good, sugar addiction, right? And I think when I step back and say, what do we have to do today? I I don't have an illusion that we can just, you know, I'm not going after somebody who's been drinking their favorite soda for 25 years and saying they're just going to quit tomorrow. Um, So I do think we have to meet the consumer where we are, which is our goal with sweet proteins is give them the sweetness. Um, But we also have to give them a pathway to get back to understanding this. Because the biggest challenge I think in front of us today is generally confusion or mistrust and kind of rightfully so look at all the things that have been promised would be the silver bullets that have no longer turned out to be the silver bullets. Um, And that's where I get really excited about sweet proteins, because if you look at every sugar or sugar alternative today, there's roughly 60, 65 different types. Most people can't, I always say they're kind of lost in the sauce when it comes to our labels. What, what exactly gets called what anymore? The reality is they all tend to function one way. They act as a small molecule in our body, which means when they bombard our taste buds, which is how they they sort of your brain finds out you just got sugar and you get happy. um, As they move through your digestion, whether they are traditional sugars, plant-based or artificial or any of the high intensity types, they are interacting with your insulin system, regardless of what they're doing immediately to blood sugar. And they're ending up in your gut microbiome. That's just biologically how small molecules work. Put in contrast to that proteins. Proteins move through your digestive system without triggering insulin levels and don't hit your gut microbiome. The reality is, is we have a lot of years throughout the world of common understanding of the role of proteins in our body. So what I get excited about is we could actually tackle this big problem 
not with another me too of trying to explain why it might be 90% instead of 100% or 60%, but we can actually give you a pathway that says, we know what proteins do and proteins do this. So if you're going to look for sweetener, sweeten with proteins. Look for sweet protein powered. That's the way to get your sweetness. And hopefully we can use that to break through the noise for consumers of which is a better or worse evil of every one of the things I'm calling a sugar today, right? Because I don't really want to give you a sugar. I want to give you a protein and I want that protein to happen to do more than build muscle. Protein can actually also give you sweets. And that's a much better pathway for your body. That's the goal. Well, it makes tons of sense compared to a lot of the artificial sweeteners or still chemical, let's say, alternatives, right? Let's do something that is natural and that doesn't have any potential repercussions. So there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Uh, let's start from uh, there's production, there's climate, there's education. Let's start with consumer education, which is at the top, right? It is. Um, and it starts young. You, it, does. Can... it does. I mean, I still think way before my mom's time, the simple philosophies were are still the truth, right? Everything in moderation is is still a golden rule. And if it doesn't take a little time to prepare, it's probably not that healthy for you. Those are pretty still good standards. But in a world of zero calorie confusion of health and zero sugar confusion, going out and sort of giving a pathway to consumers that they can trust is our number one and hardest job in introducing sweet protein. It's as much as I get asked about the fermentation technology we're doing, we actually have a very scalable technology. We're already able to meet and beat sugar prices. We're probably one of the best case studies of the role of fermentation. So I actually think the tech is easier than the consumer piece. The harder piece is consumer. And that's because there's so much confusion and general mistrust of who's pitching. And I'm not sure I disagree with the why. I get why consumers have ended up there. My hope, and it's why we're investing very heavily in our own products, really it's not because we're trying to be the biggest tea company. There are people already making teas all over the world. It's really because tasting is believing. How do you get people to trust if they can't actually decide they like it? Because liking is everything for food. And tasting gives us a chance to start to educate. So you see us doing massive commitments to producing foods, to do free trials, to create the opportunity for a conversation around proteins. And that's really the game. And that's the thing I'm working on probably more than anything else. It's the single most important and I think will be the biggest challenge. Well, yeah. And I think in addition to what you just said, I was talking to a friend of mine. Now I live in Europe, which it's good food is quite easy to access. Actually, you, you eat worse and more expensive, obviously, in cities. But if you go outside in the country, you can still get good organic produce for for much cheaper. But a lot of people today are working parents. Uh, to eat well is very, very expensive. When regular food is very processed, what we just said. And the reality is that that's what's accessible to them. Yep. Right? Like the conversation is, oh, well, this is what we can afford. And this is what's quick enough, fast enough. This is what I can do. This is the best they can do. Uh, and how do we create? I agree. I, we, we live in the modern world, right? Like I live in a little town north of San Francisco called Davis in 
the heartland mm-hmm. of farm America, right? So I also get great access to farmer's markets and easy to good grown food. But I don't, I've lived all over the world. I don't have an illusion that's what most people have access to and that it's complicated. I said to you earlier that I've spent a career at the intersection of healthy living and technology. And this is this, the most beautiful marriage I've ever seen of the two. And this is where fermentation becomes such an important part of this story. The way sweet proteins, the way Oobly was originally founded, and let me go you talk you through the founder story because it gets a little bit at why I think we can make this accessible. And it can be even part of the solution in what I think are otherwise two packaged foods, but we can at least start taking some of the sugar out, right? And that's the original research started with one of the founder's mothers had breast cancer and some of the early academic research on sweet proteins, and in particular one, Miracle Berry, actually can help people who have ischemia, so who've lost the ability to taste during chemotherapy. And that's where the research started. But as they got into it, they're like, holy smokes, most of these are just sweeteners and they're better sweeteners and they're better for you. And they evolved to actually be trickster sugar. So they're very good at it. Unlike most other things that we're using as sugar alternatives, that's actually how these evolved. So we started looking at sweeteners as a whole, but we quickly realized plant-based was not going to be accessible. We were going to be making another thing that was only for the wealthy. And not only we could say, all right, let's say we were really just interested in Portofino and the Hamptons, and we weren't going to worry about anywhere else. Um, Bottom line is I can't bend the global health curve that way, right? Um, If I'm going to bend the global health curve, I have to have mass adoption. So the only way to have that is to have a COGS accessible, a cost of goods sold that could compete with what I have to replace, which is sugar or sugar alternatives today. So the beauty is we figured out quickly, hey, fermenting these wouldn't just be a huge climate play, but actually would be the way for us to make this mass accessible. We take a plant-based, nature identical, and then brew it like we do beer or wine, right? Very similar process. Um, And that allows us to actually meet and beat sugar prices at my stage. So I am in commercial production, actually in Belgium, in Mexico, and the U.S., but I'm certainly not worldwide, right? We got our first regulatory approvals in the U.S. this year. So we're still very early when you think of size of production. And I am able to compete with sugar today, which means I will be able to be a cost solution at every level. And that's a really important part of our proposition. Of course, the first products I have out now, a sweet tea that's $3 is more expensive because I'm also trying to be in the cities, have a conversation, talk to a particular demographic and spread the word. But the thing that gets me more, way more excited is knowing that I actually have already cracked the code on how we can make this an affordable option for the large CPG that exists in the world that have an growing mandate to be part of a rehabilitation sort of challenge. And, but they don't necessarily have a good option. Sweet proteins can be that. I'm very excited that we can be a part of that solution. And so to the extent that I can't fix every part of somebody's local food access, I could actually start to help bring the sugar down. Um, and do it in a way that's all accretive for health. The bonus, of course, is all of this is equally good for the planet. We produce too much sugar. So in the, in the realm of eating too much and having it in every sort of end product we have, there's a reason why cane and beet sugar, as well as now most sugar alternatives, hit top 10 most harmful crops in the world for over 10 years now. And it's just purely production. And that hits us not just in land, but in water usage, right? So a very early, we did our first LCA this year, our life cycle analysis, and our very early look, and we looked at it versus sugar cane, sugar beet, and stevia. 
is conservatively, we can be taking for every 1% of any of those we take out, we can put about 525,000 acres back or set another way, 300,000 soccer fields. We can do about a quarter million cars off the road for every 1% that we reduce. And the numbers look really good really quickly. Um, around 200,000 Olympic size swimming pools in water, right? So easy ways to get it really quickly, just replacing because of the pure leverage of fermentation, which is we use sugar and we use water as an input, but not an output for every end product. And that dramatically reduces our production, which is a huge climate lever for all of us. So I look at that and I think this is sort of the triple win that I get excited about. It, it's great tasting, which at the end of the day, it's food and we're picky and we're spoiled and we want it to taste great, right? Um, it's healthy. It's a game changer. We know what proteins do and these are proteins and that's a really good win. And at the same time, it can be a game changer for the planet, all on the backs of something that's affordable. That is what I get excited about with sweet proteins. Well, that's amazing. So you talked holistically about a lot. Let's maybe dive a little bit deeper. Like, let's start with the environment. Obviously, you gave us a, some great stats. Uh, I would assume also on the biodiversity, obviously sugar and beets are not corn and uh, maize and soy, but it's still a crop that we grow intensively. And today, as you said, you have different kind of, of plants that you can use with these proteins, but potentially there are more. What are they? There's about a dozen known academically. Yeah. We are active on about six on our platform. The I'll, I'm going to tell you the first ones that we have through regulatory because I can talk about those because we have publicly filed documents out on them. The first one is is our name, our company name inspiration. It's the Ubli Fruit. We take a fanciful name to our name, but it grew up. It's mostly found in West Africa, and the Ubli Fruit, which uh, Ubli in French. It means forgetfulness. And we know that the local villagers that would eat this fruit used to, the saying used to be that the fruit that they would find that was so sweet, they'd forget their mother's milk. And so that's sort of the inspiration for our name for this category. And in the Ubli fruit, there's two. Um, most of these fruits and berries only produce one or two tiny little proteins. That's also why they'd be an agricultural nightmare, right? Like they'd they grow in very precious ecosystems that we shouldn't take more from. We need to leave more alone, right? Um, and they also tend to only produce just enough to do the little trickster work the plant was trying to do, which means they're not effective or productive from an agricultural production point of view. But they do two types. The brazing 53 and brazing 54 are the scientific names of the protein that is the ubli fruit sweet protein that comes out of the ubli fruit. And those were our first two that we have taken through regulatory regulatory approvals in the U.S. We've taken a pretty conservative view. I mean, we don't. I've said to you before. We really think this is a this is a not a U.S. problem; it's a global problem. But because these are not foods or proteins that have had a history of documented usage, we know local villagers have eaten them for years. We have local records of that, but there's not a lot of that written usage. You have to go through regulatory for each protein in every country, right? Which means it's a pretty big regulatory lift. So what we've done up front is said, "Hey, we got to do the highest level of toxicology studies because how what a what a wrong thing for us to do to go after trying to solve this and not then make sure we've removed every possible risk. So we've taken a very high standard for our toxicology studies 
And we've done that so that we can, when we get the first U.S. regulatory approval, we can go faster into every country because we've already done, even in some cases, more toxicology studies than is required in the U.S. So we can take it everywhere. Um, and our first ones are the, from the Ubli fruit and they're brazing 53 and 54. We're also working, and I can tell you very openly, on the thaumatin, uh, thaumatin protein, which is the katamphe fruit, monolin, which is the serendipity berry. And then we've, we originally did, and the research started with the miracle berry fruit, and that miraculin is the scientific name protein. That actually we love, and we de- we've done more research on that on any, but we actually think it's best used for medical applications because it's very much a taste modifier. It's not just a sweetness in food. So if I sweeten your cereal with it, your orange juice wouldn't taste the same that day. So it's got specific usage that are more surgical than most of the sweet protein. And then we have about half a dozen others that I can't yet talk about, mostly because they're in their early stages of us releasing information on them. Which is amazing because it's all fruits that I I don't think we've heard before. So that can give us a chance to learn a little bit about plants and fruits and veggies that we can eat. Um, And thank you for that. Obviously, you you spoke about uh, traditional fermentation, which is the technology. And then you told us a little bit about the teas. Can you dive more into the products that Ubli does? Well, our first product, and I'll tell you why we did tea. Our first product are our sweet teas. And I always get asked, first of all, why teas or why beverages? And so I zoom back out and say, well, why beverages? If I look at the daily added sugar problem in the world, most statistics today would say it's about 42% of the daily sugar problem that we have is in our beverages, right? So we were like, all right, let's start with the no pun intended, 800-pound gorilla of this space, right? And that's beverages. Then why teas? We really think of this as a global problem. And when you look at young people in America are pretty different than their 40-year-old equivalents, and they're much more globally connected. And if you look at the hottest trend in drinks, and unfortunately, one of the newest sugar delivery mechanisms is what's coming for young people in teas, from regular sweet teas to everyday teas to bobas, As they've moved away increasingly to soda, a lot of us would say good, and maybe challenge different convention of coffee, but a lot of those are still loaded with sugar. Even as they're rolling out these great new, otherwise plant-based or herbal options, they're adding a lot of sugar. Um, So Teas was a place for us to go. My co-founder, Jason, who's the technologist, and he's really a phenomenally lovely guy, and the guy behind how we actually pull off this science, grew up in Alabama. And so in the South, we have a, he has a commitment to try to figure out, we have a particular obesity and diabetes issue in the South, and they have a particular penchant for sweet teas. So lots of reasons why we thought starting out in teas was a great place. And so here's what we did with our teas. And it, it's a little bit of an example for you. Sweet proteins in and of themselves are, don't cause any sort of blood sugar level increases or hit the gut microbiome and our, and our trace amounts of calories. And the reason is you just use tiny amounts because they're very, very sweet. They're 2,000 to 5,000 times sweeter than sugar. So you use a small amount. Um, but what I do with a product depends on a lot of things. So what we wanted to do for our first products is not tell you what product you like, but we looked at 20-year-olds and we looked at the sweet teas that were being consumed in the U.S. And we picked a profile and we said, they're the ones that are the most popular for the urban younger group that we want to kind of benchmark to 
are around 22 grams of sugar. That's sort of the taste profile. So we said, hey, we want to actually reformulate that idea um, and then blindfold our consumers in our sensory tests so that four out of five tell us they, they don't know we did something different. They think the teas are interchangeable, right? So in this first instance, we're only using our first protein, which was the Brazing 53, because that was when we released these in the summer, that was the first one through our regulatory approval. And I'll tell you a little bit why only having one versus multiple matters later. And so what this one is, is the 22 to 24 gram equivalent sweetness at seven grams of sugar instead. And then you'll ask me, well, why, why is there any sugar in it? First of all, this is an Arnie P, which is lemonade tea. We also have things like Peachy Please, which is our peat tea. And they have about five grams of the fruit because we did do a fruit forward equivalent of this benchmark that we were doing. They still have about one to two, depending on what it is, of sugar. Different forms. We usually use a natural form. Could be cane sugar. Could be anything. And there's a reason for that. If we did zero sugar, and let's say we weren't doing a, a fruit flavor, you would notice a slight delay. And it's about a half a second to a second delay. And that's because the way sweet proteins work, you know how small molecules bombard your taste buds, so it's immediate. But large molecules or proteins actually bind. So it takes about a half a second to a second. And even though that seems tiny, our brains are really finely tuned instruments when it comes to sugar and sweetness. We just, we know exactly when it tastes like it's supposed to or it doesn't. So we put a little bit in to give you that experience because we're not trying to pick a new experience for you. We're just trying to give you a rehabilitated approach to that experience. And in this case, it's 75% less sweetness without any trade-offs. So that gives you a good idea where we're not, we're not trying to pick what you like. We're trying to give you what you like with a rehabilitated approach. And with any one protein alone, I can get typically 60 to 75% reduced sugar without four out of five people in a sensory test not noticing we did something different, right? And that's the goal, right? Is keep their flavor the way they want it, but make it easy for them. What's cool is when I start working with more than one protein, and I'll tell you a little bit why we think this is true, but I'm working with two or three, our newest chocolates that are out. We have dark chocolates launching in a week and we have milk chocolates coming that are phenomenal. But now we're using two to three proteins in them. So our dark chocolates, just to give you a point of view, have one gram of sugar in them. And all, the only reason we put any in is so that you get that a little upfront. And they're one third your daily fiber. So they have acacia fiber and one gram of sugar. And we have more than four out of five consumers that can't tell that we reduced sugar or took sugar out. So I get really excited. And here's why. So we, what we figured out through the research, now that we're working with a lot of proteins and a lot of production, is one plus one plus one is bigger than three when it comes to the proteins. And our hypothesis is, this is where it's still early scientific discovery, is every one of these plants and berries that was along the equator trying to solve this problem was doing it slightly differently. So monolin slightly different than brazing 53. Brazing 53 is slightly different than brazing 54. It's slightly different than the katamfe fruit. And so what they do is they bind in slightly different places. So when you combine them, they get closer to being an exact mimic to the thing they were trying to be, which is sugar. They were trying to be a trickster sugar. So we're really excited about that because what we can tell in our early model protocepts, and we now have worked across every part of the food system. We're even working on a very big bread project and cakes project. So even baking now with a very large partner that we will rehabilitate their foods. It happens to be a very large Latin American partner. And 
In most of those, I will tell you, (laughs) in most of those, I will tell you, we can get to 90% to 95% sugar reduction, like our dark chocolate. So we're super excited about those. They just are big breakthroughs. So with an incredible impact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Truly, truly. So obviously you said that you have the sustainability aspect is there, the scalability aspect is there, the price is there, the taste is there. What are the challenges that you still see in introducing sweet proteins to the market? In addition, I guess, to what we talked about, which are consumers, right? Consumers, education. What other challenges do you foresee? Well, I think the business challenge that rides along with the consumer challenge is how do you get large companies to rehabilitate? How do you lubricate chain? I always say my career has been at the edge of change and a forced function of disruption, but most large companies are really in the risk mitigation business, right? So when they think about a problem, they will work on it in increments for years. So they're not really in that big change. So Where I think this consumer problem of building sort of what I call the zeitgeist for sweet proteins, the demand, the more I can build that, the more I can unlock or lubricate because the more they have trust consumers are looking for it and will follow it, the more they will go faster because the big win here is really rehabilitation across the industry, right? But making it the choice requires de-risking it for them and de-risking it for them is making sure the demand is already proven, the taste is already proven. So those two come together. When you think about mass implementation, we are building and selling a lot of products. They're getting bigger, no shortage. But when you just think about the math, the amount of people making packaged foods in the world and 60 to 70% of all those foods have sugar and probably too much sugar in them. The more I can get all of them also doing it at the same time, the faster we go. So for me, that's the challenge when I turn the consumer problem into the business problem. The I think the only other big thing for me is we're a biotech company. It's been eight years of development to get to here. It's a lot of tech to get to here. And so it's threading sort of the capital required for the investment in return, really in a business that doesn't have a well-defined market. Food is medicine. Is it a CPG business? Is it a biotech business? Is it a climate business? It is a healthcare business. And if you look at any of those are different financial investing categories. And I would argue you can't get you can't get the full value of this not appreciating that it's an intersection of all of them, right? Because if it was yeah. just a multiple of CPG, it's not as valuable as what I think fixing global health around sugars can be. And so making sure that we're building a business that makes sense to investors through each one of those stages, but at the same time does challenge the convention of where those traditional markets have sat apart. I think people like you and I, it's pretty intuitive to say, really? We think food industry and healthcare industry are unrelated. Well, the financial models generally do because they haven't been business models that overlap. So we have to build the pathway for that as we build sort of the rationale for investment so that we can make sure that we don't just swing big, but we swing big with big impact. Well, nowadays we've seen, I think policy is at this intersection, right? And we've seen sugar taxes and different kinds of policies on nutrition and the importance of food. So in in a way for me is how do we create better policies that 
help or incentivize the big CPG companies to create products that maybe have a solution like yours, right? That I you think that's right. Um, sure. And if not, you get carrot and stick kind of models. Uh, but that's a priority for me because if you don't put it in the regulatory and the policy side, it's going to be very difficult to have that mass adoption of the CPG companies or the bigger brand. I think that's right. right. I think you and I violently agree. And that's why you see, I, I have been asked and answered multiple times that I think rehabilitation will happen faster in countries outside of the U.S. I think Latin America is using a stick. Tax implications are very real. Poison label equivalents on their packages are very real. I think Singapore is using a stick. I think you see more and more. I think you'll see more of that in India. That's complicated in the U.S. with a federal state system. You're probably not going to get alignment around that. It will take longer. We might end up having greater effect through the financial institutions creating mandates where the S and ESG starts to have some actual sugar metrics to it. Those haven't existed, but that's a mechanism that I think is interesting and one that I would advocate in this region for effectiveness. But I'm, there's a, I just couldn't agree with you more. You, you're you going to have to mandate that we actually reward or disincentivize not paying attention to it or continuing to feed the system the way it is. And I think the only way to do that, will have a policy piece in it. Yeah. And people don't discuss policy, I, th I think, enough. Right. We, we talk a lot about investments. What's your funding status? What's your technology? But I mean, even if you have the best technologies in the world, if you can't use them because the FDA or whatever tells you no, then you're screwed to begin with. So I agree. Those are important pathways that I we let's hammer down. I will tell you. From a U.S. perspective, and I, I can't answer as well to this in every country just because I live in, and operate as a consumer in this market, but we also need to really think about an overhaul of our labels. I think our labeling has lost its way, and we've lost the 80-20 in the 20, and that that is a big one. And the example I will give you are the things through many campaigns that are showing up now, not on sugars, that are outside of the label. And it's only adding to the confusion. And if we're really trying to help people be healthier, we're going to have to create some guardrails around what can be sponsored legislation or sponsored clinical studies. I have a lot of respect for other parts of the world that keep some of that sort of church and state separation. I don't think anybody's doing it perfectly, so we can probably all learn from each other there. But I can speak to it in the U.S. that there's a little bit the lot. I happen to also be a lawyer and I appreciate so much about what the law is, but the law was not intended to regulate common sense. Common sense is still required for cultures to come together and say what's important to us. And if you use it just to have the laws justify an end and you don't come back and say, but are the guardrails right? You can't get there just saying you're doing it through legally proper means. You have to have some cultural consensus. And I think that is a debate and a struggle that's very real in, in this country right now. I'm not sure that I can speak to it in every country, but I very much can say it's a big one in the U.S. It is massively important. So, okay, so you're also a lawyer that I did not know. And before you mentioned that you do a lot of things in addition to the law, you invest, you are on boards, Allie. 
Who's Allie? <laughs> oh, um, I would say I'm a builder. I think at my most true form, I'm happiest when I'm tackling things that I think have global impact. I'm unafraid to have a point of view that is large, but I'm not satisfied sitting on the sidelines. So I participate to build and participate to build change. So I would say today versus when I was younger, I was always that person, but I tended to do it more from the roots that I grew up in, which is I tended to be very focused on my home and my local and how to affect it. Then I went off into the world, lived in different countries, traveled, experienced, and realized the world community had a lot of these same issues and started thinking more specifically about this intersection of technology and health. And now, whether I invest, whether I sit on boards, or whether I'm building a company, I'm trying to do it around that intersection because I think that focus helps me have bigger impact. Not to say that my husband would tell you I'm still just as likely to get involved in the, the kids' education program in my backyard, but that is what keeps me up at night is sort of a global impact of our state of health and how it's showing up from... And again, I take a political risk to say this, but I think it's not unrelated to school shootings. I don't think it's unrelated to family structure and health and happiness. And I do think it's a huge contributor to how we're going to be create an educated society that can solve the kind of problems that we need to. Very well put. I'm very conscious of time. I always ask this one question to my guests. So you have a, a very comprehensive perspective of our global food system today, of the food system in the U.S. There is many critical topics that we could sit here and talk about till tomorrow. Um, but if you had a magic wand towards solving one issue or creating something that could then trickle down and solve more, what would you choose and why? I thought about it, and it's difficult for me to pick the one, right? Um, so I decided I would pick the one that's in my world, um, and I would go to the idea that we need to rethink our nutrition fact panel to get to the spirit of, and I think we've lost our way in the technicalities of lobbyist regulations that have ended up in what categories. And I, if I've pinpointed that particularly, I would say there needs to be if we're going to call sugar on the label, it's really less is it sugar and more is it triggering blood glucose and metabolic interactions. And if it is, it should show up there so people understand what it is because they don't understand today. And that's a sad part of what's going wrong with consumers and their choices. It's very true. Thank you for that. I want to add one question that I did not ask you, but I think that it's an important one. I, I wanted to ask, we hear a lot, you know, food is medicine, guts, microbiome. Um, can you dive a little bit deeper into the relationship between gut microbiome and sugar reduction? It is a, it's a great question. A lot of what's going on with sugar reduction in the gut today is because so much of what we're eating is sugar alternatives, right? A lot of those were not things that were in our, our flora before, and they're all feeding new bacteria. So 
you can't have a hotter category in a grocery aisle in the drinks in the U.S. right now than probiotic, prebiotic, and just about every version of gut health. From a sweet protein point of view, what I'm so excited about, this isn't about fixing the problem. This is about preventing. We're not putting more of those into the gut. So this is about eating better so that you have less to actually go buy things to repair it with. And that's really as much a gut play as it is blood glucose or insulin. All of that is the difference between moving from a small molecule to a large molecule into this sort of pathway of getting sweets or mechanism of action shows up in both as preventative. And so you're just reducing the load, right, of what's already going on down there. So we're not the sole problem because there's more things going on than just what people are sweetening with. And that's affecting the gut in a lot of different ways. The lack of what we eat is going on there too, right? Um, Again, overly processed, not enough fiber is part of it. But I think you can think of sweet proteins as prevention, not another remedy for the problem. Yeah, also because, I mean, we've seen, at least since I was a little girl, the increase in numbers of uh, immunitary diseases, of intolerances, of allergies, right? Like, I, I have issue, health issues of my own. And I remember when I was first diagnosed with Crohn's, it was a rare disease. Now it's very common disease. It is. So... And I'm sorry, you have that. We, I can share with you and I I don't mind sharing. We talk about it a lot, but part of really what moved my health technology emphasis to food is my husband was diagnosed with MS when our son, who will be 21 this week, was about four. So we, we very much then we're always sort of predisposed to healthy eaters. We were lucky how we were raised, but it's been a journey of the same. And and that definitely inspires a lot of why we're willing to question what we're questioning and, and continue to push um, better methods. Yes. And food is definitely at that center. For sure. It's at the center of it all. For sure. There's the relationship between food and autoimmune diseases are so, so clear, but they're generally separate from most of medicine, which is, which is its own cultural challenge, certainly from a U.S. perspective. I don't think that's Unique to the U.S., but very clearly in the U.S. Yes, and it would be so much easier, right? Uh, I mean, there's not a one-size-fits-all. I remember my doctor long, long ago, they were telling me, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. And some things just made me sick of my you-can-eat list. Right. Uh, And he was like, you gotta listen, learn to listen to your body. Yeah. Your body... uh, will notify you <laughs> of what you actually need. You know, there's no doctor that can tell you right uh, better than what you can tell yourself. That's right. And if we do listen, right? Um, I agree. We I agree. We well, I think, again, I think that's one of the things that when you look at probably obesity in particular, and there's a million reasons, I, I don't in any way body shame in this comment because the reality is we have all sorts of preconditions going on today. So I think it's a shared communal problem that we need to tackle. But the reality is, is when we look at the average person in the U.S. over 65 is on six different medications, we've disintermediated our diet from our bodies and ourself from our bodies. And if we don't reconnect those, that's like missing the most important sort of relationship of, of my dad used to always say, your body's your temple, take care of it, right? So you've got to listen to it, right? No matter what anything else says, you've got to be able to listen to it. And by definition, a lot of these big macro issues we have, 
they sort of suggest we've turned off the listening. Um, and, th- and that's, that's, that's a hard thing to start to unlock and figure out how we get there. So, and the same, I think with healthcare, right? Like you have today, you have the best specialist, uh, for any small little, you know, you zoom into, I don't know, your pinky finger, but what about holistically you as a human being with what happens in your knee has repercussions in your shoulder or in your gut, right? Um, if you have leg pain, it could be a hernia. So whole body versus assembly line medicine, right? Assembly line medicine in our system makes more money. Highly repetitive point solutions make more money. We've turned them into assembly lines, but they run contrary to general health. And unfortunately, you can see that in our statistics, we don't have enough people going into things like pediatrics because it's whole health. Well, that's crazy right? Like it, it is, there's some crazy elements of this when we've optimized system. And I really, I have a lot of doctors in my family. I don't wake up to think any of them woke up to do it wrong. It's sort of this combination of how the system's evolved. And I, I come back all the time and use my joke as the lawyer and say, you know, but, but you can't regulate common sense. We still have to be able to look at it no matter how smart we all are, educated we are and say, but is this delivering what we want? And not be afraid to ask that question. Super true. Super true. More holistic. Oh my God, we could talk for hours here. You and I should definitely spend some more time together. I will follow you more closely. I'm delighted to meet you. And like I said, I I genuinely met it from the beginning. It's really nice to meet a kindred spirit. Same. It's been a pleasure, uh, conscious of time. So really, it's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's reconnect soon. Thank you. I'd love to... Want to deep dive into food innovation? Subscribe to the Food Tech Junkies series. Tune in and listen to the industry's champions whose mission is to reinvent our future by collaborating and disrupting the status quo as a way to rebalance our planet and our daily lives. For more great food and ag tech content, visit our website at www.edibleplanetventures.com and don't forget to follow us on social media.